Look at that. Huh? Come on. No, that's not Vanessa's first husband. That's me. It's in case, right? So this, this morning, this popped up in my, in my Facebook feed. We were testing the slides earlier, and I think it was Donald, part of the worship team. I just burst out laughing, right? And, and then he says, was that taken in the 80s? And I said, no, nah, it was taken in like 1998. We were just a little bit behind the times in our style. So it was great. I, I'm, I'm sharing that picture. That was probably a year after uh, we, we had been married for about a year. But when I saw that picture, it reminded me of the November vacation that we did. Vanessa and I went with for a weekend getaway with my parents uh, down into the Outer Banks. And that's the weekend that I proposed to her. And I, it, it's one of my favorite vacations, right? Because of just the significance of the memory that that vacation is. It led to this. It led to so many other things, right? It's part of what led to what's even here tonight. So I thought, you know, for our participation moment, just to get our brains moving in the right direction, is what's, what's a favorite vacation that you've had? Maybe you could just, a place that you've been, maybe just something descriptive that would help us connect to it, but you raise your hand. I'll point to you, Hannah. Honeymoon at Disney. Come on. Somebody else. A favorite vacation? Is my, thank you. Showing my microphone? All right. Did you say Paris? Nice. When was that? That was a long time ago? Long time ago. I was like, I don't, I've known you for a long time. I don't know about Paris, right? Nice. Somebody else. Favorite vacation? Anybody back here? Sally. Yeah, after her and Zach got married, going to California, California for the first time to visit family. Will? Yeah, Lorraine and Shenandoah. That's awesome, right? If you've never been to Lorraine Cabins and you're in Virginia, you got to go. Jamie? Honeymoon in Tennessee. Somebody else, Ron? Malta, yes. A little Bible action there too, right? A little Belva history. Somebody else in the middle here? Does I see a hand? Vinny? The Ozarks. Yes. Marvin? St. Kitts, somebody else? A cabin in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Out in the woods? Yeah, yeah. a little rustic. Maui? Maui. Baltimore. Baltimore? Keith? Jamaica, yes. Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. You guys are rolling. Vegas. Vegas, yes. Did you win or did you lose? <laughs> oh, all right, I broke even. All right, not that I would know about it. Maui, Maui yes. Spain, Cancun, that was recent too. Come on, I know. Virginia Beach, yeah. Come on, locals, good. Don't let don't don't let them laugh at you. Don't let them, Tara. Good good staycation. Now let me ask you this question. Yeah, I was like, uh oh, I know you know it's coming. What's an example of the work that you had to do? so that that vacation could happen. <laughs> yeah, somebody with toddlers, right? When we went to um, Cancun, we had to stay for three years, plus all of our tax refunds, plus we had to get the money back from the child for a week. Yeah, babysitter for a week, saved three years of tax refunds to have the money to be able to go. Somebody else, an example of work that you had to do to make your vacation possible. Yeah, top sales for the year. You're working hard all year for the bonuses that you need to be able to make that trip. We had to drive from Virginia to Maryland to drop our son off, then back to D.C. to catch a flight, then back to Maryland, then 
Yeah, that's a whole lot of driving, right? And that's just not driving anywhere. That's DC traffic driving, right? Somebody else, work that you had to do. Yeah, working overtime, would you say a timeshare? Yeah, or if you've had to sit through a timeshare presentation, right? We know that's work. Tara had to drive through the HRBT, right, to get, right? I had to, had to. Somebody else, some work that you had to do. Where, where are my car packers? I had to, well, we all packed in one car, and I had to work. Like, yeah. Two weeks of work. Yeah. Yeah, and if, you're, and if you're young adults traveling places, a lot of times just like seven people in a four-passenger car, right, all packed in. How about the people that pack the car? Is anybody else the car packer in their family? I know. So how about, I'm just, just working some things through here in my own heart. How about when you get the car packed, it's July, you're sopping sweat, you gotta go in, right, and take another shower, change your clothes again, you think it's finished, and somebody comes out with two suitcases and a cooler, right? Yeah, Greg, yeah, I know. I got an amen, right? Because now you're doing the work of restoring your marriage just so you can go on vacation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> still in the driveway. We're leaving it here, right? We're leaving it here. Every, every vacation that you go on, there's work that you've got to do to get there. You don't remember the work, usually, because the memory is so significant. You with me? The memory... Dis, the memory of the experience displaces the memory of the effort. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Work hard, Peter says. Do these things and you will never fall away, then God will give you, listen to what it says, a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is his grace that gets you into the kingdom. I'm saying to you, it's your hard work here and now that makes it grand when you get there. I don't want to just barely escape the flames like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. It is grace. It's this table that gets us there. There's no work involved in that. It's a free gift of salvation. But I think what Peter is saying here, if that entrance is going to be grand for us, it's going to be connected to the effort and the work that we do. And he says, work hard. What are these things? 2 Peter 1, 4 through 7, just above that, he gives us the list. Because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature. We have an opportunity to work towards sharing in the divine nature of God and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all of this, here it comes, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and with knowledge, self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance, godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. This is one of the five great growth lists that give us the 24 virtues that we use that's part of our discipleship model. This is the hard work that he's talking about because it takes work to build that kind of character in our lives. The 12 pathways that we teach here at the City Life Church, our discipleship model are so important because they give us a strategy for our efforts. It gives us a focus to the spiritual work that I must do if I have any hope of sharing in God's divine nature. 
As we were here, the worship night last night was, was amazing. If you've not been to one, we do them quarterly. It was just phenomenal. It was, this room was packed with people for two hours worshiping the prayer stations. It was so rich. And, and when, they, when I was at one of the prayer stations, I, I want to say it was the one with 1 Corinthians dealing with temptation. I felt like God began to speak to me about that one of the things that the devil does to us, one of the things that the devil does to me, and I think he probably does it to you, is that he puts a magnifying glass in front of us in life. It makes offenses bigger than they are. It makes challenges larger than they should be. But you know one of the ways that he puts that magnifying glass in front of our lives? He makes the effort that God expects of me larger than it really is. So when we're talking about reading the Bible every day, you know what he does? He slips that magnifying glass in front of us and we go, oh, come on, that's a lot. Talk about Saving money to go on a missions trip at least once in your life. You know what he does? Slips that magnifying glass in front of us and we go, oh, that's so big, I can never do that. The magnifying glass has to get replaced by a God lens that puts everything in the right perspective. The God lens doesn't take the work out of the effort, but it most certainly puts it in the right perspective. And we put, we put a God lens in front of the effort that he asks of us. We begin to not only see the work, but we begin to see the memory that he wants us to make with him through the labor that he requires. The magnifying glass only makes what's right in front of us bigger and it obscures everything else in a distance. A God lens puts what's in front of you in the right perspective and it also enables you to get a vision for what the future holds. And then you begin to see why the effort is necessary. It's why you do the work to go on vacation because you've got a vision for what's gonna happen when you get there. And then you get there and the memory begins to erase the effort. You gotta work hard to remember what it was like. Fasting is hard work. It's not easy to tell your body, I'm not giving you any food today, or the next day, or the next day. If you do an extended fast, it takes work, it takes effort. It's part of this hard work that Peter says. And God says to you, and he says to me, do the work because there's a memory that he wants to make to us that we don't want to miss out on. Can I just tell you that God lens, how it gets in front of you? The God lens gets, God lens gets in front of you through the pathways themselves. As you begin to read God's word, it pushes away the magnifying glass. As you give yourself to meaningful relationships, those relationships with friends that love you enough to say hard things to you, you know what that does? It pushes the magnifying glass out of the way. Their encouragement, yes, sometimes even their correction becomes the lens that you need to have. Prayer, worship, yes, fasting itself, all of these pathways help keep a lens in front of us for God's perspective and the vision that he has for us. We talked last week that one of the reasons we fast is for spiritual maturity. That's part of the concept of our pathways and our discipleship model. And you can listen to the podcast from last week if you want to learn more about that. You can also, if you're visiting with us, we want to give you one of our books. It's free. It's a little booklet on our discipleship model. You should take it and begin to give yourself a strategy for how you can grow to begin to experience God's divine nature. But last week, I also introduced to you, we've not taught on this for years, but we delved into Dr. Elmer Towns' book, Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough. So there's fasting for spiritual maturity, but then there's also fasting for spiritual breakthrough. 
And he builds this teaching off of Isaiah 58, 6 through 8. If you're interested in this little book, you can get it at christianbook.com. I'm sure you can get it at other places too, but they have a great value there through that website. But fasting for spiritual breakthrough. And in Isaiah 58, 6 through 8, he identifies nine situations that fastings, fasting helps you get a breakthrough that you're looking for. We covered two of them last week, and we're going to do our best to get through the last seven tonight. We'll see how far we get. So number three, again, we did two last week. Number three is confession, confession. When you are praying and longing for people to confess sin, whether people estranged from God who need to confess their need for Jesus or a follower of Christ who remains unrepentant, then go on a fast. 1 Samuel 7, two through six says, the ark remained in Kirath-Jearim for a long time, 20 years in all. And during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of your foreign gods, your images of Asherah, turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. You'll notice there, there's sins of omission and commission. We're gonna talk about that. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Asherah and they worshiped the Lord. So they stopped doing the things that they weren't supposed to do. They started doing the things that they were supposed to do. Then Samuel told them, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So he gathered at Mizpah and in a great ceremony, drew water from a well, poured it out. That's a drink offering. The Mosaic Law talks about this. And listen what it says. They also went without food for an entire day an entire day, and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. Part of confession is dealing with things in our lives that we're doing that we know we're not supposed to do. But for many of us, the sin we struggle with is not the things that we're not supposed to do. It's the things that we're, we're supposed to do and they're omitted from our lives. Many of these pathways, they also become our sin. If you're not walking in the practices of generosity and the way God says, now you might say, well, I'm not spending money on things that I'm not supposed to do like I used to, then, then, then right, you're, you're, you're moving away from a sin of commission, but you still might have a sin of omission when it comes to the stewardship of your finances because you're still not spending it in the way that God wants you to. So there's, there's, there's forgiveness for what I do that I shouldn't, but there's also forgiveness for what I don't do that I should. And right here in this text, we're reminded that fasting is connected to us finding the spiritual strength that we need to break free from the things that we're not supposed to do, to break into the things that we are supposed to do, and to find the humility and the courage that we need to bring a confession to God so we can be cleansed from the sin in our hearts. Fasting isn't just for you. Fasting is a great means of intercession for others. How many of you know someone that you've been praying for because there's a practice in their life that you know it's just undermining their destiny? Go on a fast for that person and begin to pray. I'm telling you, these, these, these nine situations that Dr. Elmer Towns identifies, these fasting for spiritual breakthrough, it works. Number four, somebody say self-control. I know it's hard to get those syllables to form in our mouths, aren't it? self control. We don't like to say it. When our emotions are ruling over us instead of us ruling over them, when we feel out of sorts, discombobulated, fractured, despairing, out of control, go on a fast. Go on a fast. 
1 Kings 19, three through nine, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba. This is after one of the greatest miraculous moments in all of the Bible. If you've not read it, you should check it out. And it was after this that he's afraid. You would think that, that after this, this great moment of the demonstration of God's power that he would be emboldened, but it's just the opposite. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. Depression's a real thing. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and he slept under that tree. And while he was sleeping, the angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. The implication of the text that Elijah is on a fast trying to deal with this struggle that he has with his own heart. And God is saying that it's time to break that fast and it's time to eat something. He looked around there beside his head and some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and he lay down again and an angel of the Lord came and again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more. And he's in the wilderness. So the, the idea is that the angel is the one that's bringing him this food and this water from heaven. He says, you, you're gonna need it for the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank the food and it gave him strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights. Angel bread is serious business. Right, that's some high calorie content. Two meals, 40 days. Power bar's got nothing. So he got up and he ate and drank enough food for, to Mount Sinai, to the mountain of God. Right, This is the place where Moses himself met with God and got the Ten Commandments. Got a vision for a nation. Verse 9 there, he came to a cave where he spent the night, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you, many of you are familiar with the story. If you're not, you've got to read it for yourself. Powerful encounter that Elijah has with God here. Powerful encounter. But the piece that if you read through it too quickly, what you don't realize is Elijah is struggling with his emotions. And so he's on this fast. And God says to him, okay, now it's time to break the fast. Now, I joked with you last week, if you're new to fasting, you, you should pre determine the length of time for the fast. If, if, if you're new to fasting and you say, oh, I'm gonna start a fast and, and I'm just gonna let God tell me that when I'm supposed to stop, you're gonna be convinced that you hear him tell you stop after about 15 minutes, right? But, but if you're experienced with fasting like Elijah was, it's safe to start a fast and just say, I'm not gonna break it until God tells me to. So God comes and tells him it's time to break this fast. But why was he fasting? He was fasting because of his, his struggles with his own emotional state. Now, I'm not saying that fasting and prayer is a cure-all for all depression. We don't believe that as a church. Sometimes you need counseling. Sometimes you need medication. There's lots of different kinds of ways that you've got to sometimes deal with a struggle with your emotions. But one of them is most certainly prayer and fasting. God gave us our emotions for us to rule over them, not for them to rule over us. And if you're struggling with control over your emotional life, we touched on this last week, if you learn to control your appetite for food, I'm telling you, you will begin to experience all kinds of breakthrough for every other area of your life. It's why fasting is supposed to be a central part of the Christian experience. People sometimes will experience a worship service like we had tonight and maybe what we had last night, and, and maybe their criticism is that that's just a lot of emotion. And what I like to say to them, you better believe it is. Because I want my relationship with God to be full of emotion, and full of love, and full of passion. 
One of the great privileges I have as a, a pastor is to do weddings. I've done countless weddings since being in vocational ministry in the early 2000s. And can I just tell you, every wedding that I've ever been in to be a part of, it's full of emotion. And if it's not, it's trouble, right? It's trouble. If you can't be impassioned on that day, right, it's going to be a long road, a long road. It, 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 so many times people think that Christianity, because there's so many beliefs, that it's only about intellectualism, but not about emotion. And what we're saying is, yeah, you've got to believe the right things, but feel something, for goodness sake. When they asked Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? He didn't talk about thinking, he talked about feeling. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there a way to love God with your thoughts? Sure, but the higher standard is the emotion that comes from it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Feelings are given to us as a gift, but they're not supposed to govern us. We're supposed to govern them. If you struggle with your emotions, I guarantee you fasting is missing from your life. Number five, number five. When we are moved by the needs of others, when we're moved by the needs of others, faced with the opportunity to help, are in a position to feed someone hungry, care for someone who's lacking, go on a fast. Listen to Nehemiah, one, one, chapter one, verse four. When I heard this, what's he talking about? He heard that Jerusalem was in ruins. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Why? Because he had a sense that he was supposed to be a part of making a difference. And so he said, I'm going to fast because I want to know from God. I, I don't, I don't want to just come up with my own idea of how I'm supposed to get involved. I want God's idea for how I'm supposed to get involved. If you just do your idea, you're going to be either over-involved or under-involved. I guarantee your humanity is either going to lead you in, in some direction because it's really only about your own glory or through selfishness you're going to pull back. But when you take this fast in prayer, when you have a sense of being a part of making a difference, if, if you get God's direction, you're going you're to do exactly what you're supposed to do. This offering that we're going to take up on December 16th, I, I guarantee you that $15,000 between this campus and the campus in Suffolk, that money is in our church. There are over 400 and some people that call City Life Church their home between these two campuses, that money is in our church. Your responsibility is to decide what part you're supposed to play in that offering. And a great way to figure that out is fast for a day. Just fast for a day. Just, just set aside a day between now and the 16th and say, God, I, I want to hear from you what I'm supposed to do to be a part of that offering. We don't want you to give more than you're supposed to, and we don't want you to give less than what you're supposed to. But we believe, we started this last year, it's going to be a tradition for our church for the foreseeable future, that every Christmas we're going to pick a project. Last year, we raised enough money to build a school with Marvin, Thomas, and Haiti. Come on, it was so good. So good! And this year, we're going to get behind this village that we've adopted in the Dominican Republic. All of us together can be a part of making that happen. There's no reason why that offering can't be more than $15,000 and become seed money for something else. How about Port, December 10th? So love the fact that it's all full. All the slots are taken. But you know what's not complete? Are the needs of the people that are showing up for Port for care. 
You think it's hard to do an overnight shift? Live in port for six months. Real needs. You might say, well, a lot of those people created the circumstances that led to their demise. Maybe. It doesn't change how hard it is now that they're there. If you're signed up for port, if you're not signed up for port, this, this is what I would encourage you to do on that day. What's that day? December 10th. December 10th. Just, just fast one meal. Just on December 10th. Just skip one meal. Skip lunch that day or, 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 or skip dinner that night and go to bed on an empty stomach. Just, just, to, just to get a glimpse of what it's like. And pray for the people that are in port for breakthrough in their own life. Whatever it is that's causing them to struggle to be in that place of, of extreme poverty. You don't have to know who they are for your prayers to make a difference. Because God knows who they are. And he knows their situation and he knows their circumstance. And fasting is a huge part of intercession like we talked about before. Sometimes we're motivated to intercede for the people that we know and love, but we maybe need a little encouragement to intercede and pray for people we don't. But God still might ask you to do it. And I think he's asking us to do it for port. Number six, I'm telling you this book, Fasting for Spiritual Breakthrough, it's so rich. We fast for spiritual maturity, but we also fast for spiritual breakthrough. There's times where we need insight when we are stupefied, mystified, in desperate need for revelation, at the limits of our intellectual capacity, our analytical skills are failing, our problem-solving abilities befuddled, perplexed, bemused, confused, and dumbfounded, go on a fast. Listen to Acts 9, 7 through 9. When the men with Saul stood speechless, like Saul's not Paul yet. He's, he's been killing Christians for years. He's headed to Damascus, right? There's a great light. He's blinded. Jesus speaks to him. It says they heard the sound of someone's voice, but no one else saw Jesus, just Saul of Tarsus. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days. He did not eat or drink. Now this is a side note, but I think one of the greatest stories of faith in all of Scripture, I think his name was, was, was Ananias or Annas, something, it was something like that. That in the city that they took Saul to, God speaks to him in a time of prayer and says to him, some men are gonna show up at your house with Saul, I want you to take care of him. And he's like, can I just ask you a question, just to clarify? Is this the same guy that's murdering Christians and he's been doing it for years? God's like, yeah, that's the same guy. So when he shows up, I want you to take care of him. And he says, could I ask you another question? Right? right? He wants to be sure. What am I? It's, it's incredible, a story of faith. We, we know the end of the story. So we're like, oh, it's Paul, but he wasn't Paul then. He was a killer, a mass murderer, guilty of genocide. We're here. Come on in. Come on in. Faith, right, faith. And what does Saul do? He goes on a fast. Because he realizes that everything that he's believed to be true up until this point in his life has been a lie. And he needs a revelation. He goes on a fast. Scott McClellan. 
I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990, and in, in 1991, I decided, I, I felt like God wanted me to fast one day every week for an entire year, so I picked Thursday. So Thursday was my fasting day for an entire year. I just, I drank juice and water that day for, 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 uh, for 24 hours. And so about halfway through that year, the, I was a volunteer youth leader. That's how I got involved in, in the church that I was going to at the time. And, and the youth pastor had a Bible study for, for young men. And we, they met once a week. And they would read a book together and discuss it. Or they would take, dig into a chapter of scripture. And he invited me a part of that. And so uh, that was one of the, the beginnings of my own discipleship journey was, was being a part of this small group with these other young men with Pastor Carter. Scott McClellan was, was in that group. And he worked at the children's hospital in, in, uh, in, in, in Richmond. And, and he could get, for like $2.11, the, the biggest dinner plate you've ever seen in your life. And every Thursday, he would roll up to that Bible study with this big, huge styrofoam container with baked chicken and rice and these yeast rolls. My mouth is watering now just telling you the story, and I can smell it, right? And, and he knows that I'm fasting, right? And he, but he, right, he's, he's, he's not fasting. So I would tease him all the time. You're, you're, Scott, you're killing me. You're killing me. And you know what he would say? Oh, no, I'm helping you, brother. I'm helping you. I'm helping you, right? Because now you've got to really say no, right? I'm like, thanks, appreciate that help, Scott. Appreciate that help. For about six months, I'm just every, starving to death. There's Scott just eating away. Can, can I tell you that the word of God came alive to me that year for the first time in my life? Now, I think a lot of things contributed to that, but you know what I think one of them was? Was fasting. Once a day. I'm not saying that you got to fast once a day for an entire year. What I'm saying is you find out what God's asking you to do. Do that. You do that. That's what he asked me to do. And it was, it was just for a year. Now, fasting's been a regular part of my life since then, but, but that's the most structured that fasting is, has ever been in my life. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it was right at the beginning of the, the formation of my life as a devoted follower of Christ. And I began to learn and understand things about Scripture. It's, it's the same thing for, for Saul, who then becomes, becomes Paul. The revelation that he began to get from God over the next several years, it's no coincidence that he becomes the person that gives us the majority of the New Testament. Fasting for insight in your life. Number seven, healing. Healing. When our bodies need supernatural intervention, when our diagnosis is bleak, our physical health is threatened, our path forward for well-being is unclear. Our vision for vitality is eclipsed. Go on a fast. Go on a fast. I'm not going to read those verses out of Daniel 1, 11 through 15. It's, it's quite a long stretch of, of just four verses, but it's the story when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and many of the other uh, young uh, uh, princes of, of, of Israel, when Babylon conquered them and took them away, and, and, and these men that were capable the, the king of Babylon set them aside because he, he wanted them to be a part of his court. And so they had to go through a training and purification process. And, and they were going to be required to eat all of this kind of food that was against the Mosaic law. And Daniel said, I can't eat that. And the person that was over them says, if you don't want to eat it and you begin to get sick, they're going to kill me. And Daniel said, you, you trust me. I, I, you, I'm only going to eat what I'm supposed to eat. 
ended up just being vegetables and water out of the smorgasbord of food that he was allowed. And it says by the end of it that he was healthier than everyone else in the room. It was one of the first demonstrations of the supernatural power of God through Daniel in Babylon. If you're familiar with Daniel, it was just the beginning of his life and journey there. Fasting is a huge part of finding healing that our bodies need. These, this text in Daniel, I, I think that there's a reason why God connected those two things together for us. Now, this is a sensitive subject for the church because we know that sometimes we don't get the answer that we're expecting when we're praying for healing. Sometimes there's healing that we experience in our life when we don't even ask for it. There's just God because he's good, because his power knows no bounds. Sometimes he just touches a person. And they're, they're just dramatically healed. And they're not even seeking the healing. Then there's times where we're doing everything that we know that we're supposed to do. We're praying we're fasting, we're standing in faith, we're declaring the goodness of God, right? You're doing everything you find in the Bible and then all of a sudden you still end up at a funeral service like we did as a church this year with Denise Thomason, right? It leaves us wondering, it can leave us doubting. And what I would say to you is that's okay because it's part of the journey. That's why Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, he says you're, you're not going to understand everything. But part of this journey is you're seeing things through this clouded glass. See, this God lens that we look through sometimes, sometimes it's not so clear. That's what Paul's talking about. There's, sometimes there's situations and circumstances where we're just, we, we, we have to trust God's heart even when we don't understand. But there are times when we pray and when we fast and God moves supernatural things happen. God's power is, is unleashed in an unexplainable way. This is part of the core doctrines and beliefs of the City Life Church and many other churches in this area. And what we're saying to you is, we're not gonna let the fact that sometimes we don't have to ask, and sometimes when we do ask, it seems as though God says no, to stop us from doing this. These are the three outcomes. And if you're not careful, you'll let those two outcomes stop you from pursuing this one. It'll stop you. I, I love in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul talks about this idea of, 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 of seeing things through this, uh, like a, a, a clouded glass. He, he talks about that one day when we, when, we, that when we get to heaven, we will know as much as we are known. What, a meta, what an analogy. What an illustration. Because how well does God know you? Yeah, completely. And Paul says, one day, one day, you're gonna know every mystery to the same measure that God knows you now. And it's part of the tension that we live in in this life. But what we're saying as a church, we're gonna boldly pursue this, knowing that either of these two things can happen because this is the work that God has given to us. This is the labor that he's put into our hands. And what ends up with the result that we weren't expecting, we're gonna praise him anyways, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego talked about when they were threatened with the fiery furnace. Number eight. When our witness needs to be more declarative, when our salt and light 
calling is flavorless and dim. Our kingdom influence seems to be waning. Our evangelistic voice failing. Our desire for reaching subsiding. Go on a fast. You and I were called to be witnesses for Christ in this life. It's not just about us getting to heaven. It's not just about us having encounters with God in this life because of what Jesus did for us, like we talked about for communion. It's about us taking as many people with us as we can. Luke 1, 10 through 17, while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying, and while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar, and Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John, John the Baptist. You will have a great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. This, this prohibition against alcohol was, was directly connected to the oath of the Nazarite, which, which was a specific kind of oath. Well, that's another sermon for another time, but that's what this is referring to, that John the Baptist was going to, was, it, was it was the same uh, uh, oath that, uh, that, that uh, Samson had to step into. It's a very specific kind of oath, and it requires you to lay things down for a lifetime. See, some fasts are supposed to last forever. And those aren't fasts that you should enter into lightly. I've, I've, I've never felt compelled and prompted by God to lay something down forever. Something that's not forbidden, obviously. You gotta lay that stuff down forever. But stuff that there's no other biblical prohibition to, there's times where God might come to us and say, I want you to lay that down for the rest of your life. John the Baptist broke 400 years of prophetic silence. Oh. Malachi was the last prophetic voice in the nation of Israel, and for 400 years, there was no prophetic voice in a nation. None. What a calling. That's when Jesus came to the world. He likes a big entrance, doesn't he? He will be, John the Baptist, a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Sometimes you gotta work hard for the greater glory. John the Baptist had a greater glory that he was called to, so he was called to a greater sacrifice to get there. I'm not saying that's what your calling is. I'm not saying that's what your sacrifice is supposed to be. All of us have a destiny. All of us have a glory that we're supposed to run, out or run after. All of us have an impact that we're supposed to have, and there's a sacrifice that's connected to it. And we've gotta be willing to lay it down whenever God asks it of us. And I believe part of the lesson that we find in this text, there's a prophetic insight here that, that, that John the Baptist was the greatest of all witnesses. And if you're struggling in your own witness, go on a fast. I'm telling you, it will rekindle the fire inside of you to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. Number nine. Number nine. 
When we feel as though our physical or spiritual well-being is at risk, threatened, in jeopardy, in danger, terrorized, menaced, intimidated, fast for protection. Listen to Esther 4, 15 to 17. It says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. It's powerful, isn't it? When you go through the Bible and put together in one list all the great moments when people were asked to fast, right? It's revelatory. We, 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 when we're reading through the Bible in a year, every year as a church family, you, 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 so many of these encounters are, are, are interspersed with so many other incredible encounters. But when you, when you do studies like this and you pull all the fasts out and put it in one list, you're like, wow, so many of the great moments in Scripture were absolutely connected to fasting. And it's probably the, one of the most neglected pathways in all of our lives. Come on. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. Because the rule of the day was you can't go to see the king unless the king invites you. If you step into his court without an invitation, they can kill you right on the spot. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If you don't know this story, check it out. Amazing story of an entire nation being saved, protected. A lot of things happened, but you know what one of those things were? People fasted. People fasted. Listen to these verses in Ephesians 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Can I just read that to you again? He is the spirit at work in some of the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. No, that's not what it says. He is the spirit at work in a few of the hearts of those. No, that's not what it says. The language is clear. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of all those. All's not in there, but all is in the Greek. It's in the original language. It's everybody who refuse to obey God. Can I tell you, this is one of my biggest revelations when, when, when I was wrestling and pushing against, I, I'm not gonna say wrestling, when I was resisting and struggling against God in, in, in the summer of 1990, I did not want to give my life to him because my humanity, right, and its rebellious nature just did, didn't want to serve, didn't want to yield. It's the same struggle we all go through before we bend our knee to the Lordship of Christ. And, and one of the, the, the biggest things that motivated me in my turn were, were reading verses like this in the Bible, realizing that I was serving the devil himself. Because this is what we think. We think if we're not evil... Right? If we're not evil, we're, we're like, we're just neutral. I might not be serving Christ, but I'm not, I'm not serving the devil. He, he's not, he's not, he's, I'm not under his control. We've seen that in a movie, and we know what that looks like, right? We're like, that's not me. It's not spinning around and all this crazy stuff. Now, what, is the, what does it say? The rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen, he is the spirit at work in the heart's 
of those who refuse to obey God. You're either serving Christ or you're serving Satan, and those are the only two churches. Those are the only two choices that we're given. That's it. It's hard for us to hear that. And I remember when I began to realize that, it made me angry. It made me angry that I was actually, had been deceived into serving evil with my life. Righteous indignation welled up inside of me, and I hope it does for you too, if you're resisting your creator. If you've yet to bend your knee and make a vow of devotion to Christ, stop serving the one that wants to destroy and give yourself to the one who wants to give you life. If that's you or you know somebody that's in that struggle, fast for them. Fast for them. Esther's story was about saving a nation. Your story just might be about saving one, but if that's the person that God's assigned to you, it is still a nation of glory on your record. I invite the band to find their way back up. I was praying Thursday. I'm in a season, I'm, I'm trying to commit an hour of prayer every day that I'm here during the week in the offices. So I was praying on Thursday and I felt like God gave me a word for someone here. It's not a kind word, but I'm gonna give it to you because he gave it to me. The word was lackadaisical. Lackadaisical. I love the story of Nehemiah. He's one of my, my, my favorite persons of history in the Bible, and in 4.6, in four, it says that as they were rebuilding the wall, right, because Nehemiah, asked, God tells him what his part's supposed to be. His part is supposed to be lead, the actual rebuilding of this entire city, start with a wall. It says that every family was assigned the wall in front of their house. That's a smart leader right there because they were motivated to make sure that part of the wall was fixed because that's the part that would affect them. How many of you want to go to a church where there's a lackadaisical pastor? Anybody looking for a church like that? You're here tonight visiting. Is that on your list? Great worship, good teaching. I want a lackadaisical pastor. How many of you want to call your pastor and, and, and it's Christmas and, 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 and you just got laid off of work unexpectedly and now there's not gonna be any Christmas for your family. You're devastated. You call your pastor and say, could I come over and just to pray with you? I'm so discouraged right now. And your pastor says, well, I'm, I'm binge watching Stranger Things right now and, and I got one more up. Can I call you back in 45 minutes? Yeah, who, who, who wants that from the pastor? How many of you want lackadaisical elders? Anybody? Anybody? Show of hands. Lackadaisical elders. Anybody? You get a phone call that your child's been in an accident and you hear from the police, he's okay, but he's in the hospital and you call one of the elders and say, would you meet us at the hospital? We're afraid. And they say, well, you know, my favorite college football team's in the conference championship. Can I check back in with you at halftime? You looking for a church that has elders like that? Anybody? Lackadaisical. You might not have a title, but you have a purpose. You might not have a title, but you have a responsibility. Your responsibility is the wall that's in front of you. And you know what that wall is? It's your own heart. It's your own heart. There's a building of your heart that only God is gonna do, but there's a part of that building 
that God gives to you. God had to move in divine and supernatural ways for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, but those people, they worked hard to do their part. And their part was the part of the wall in front of their house. And the part of the wall that's in front of your house is your own heart. The part of the divine nature that's supposed to be in you. In you. And when you have a church that you call home, you know what part of calling a church home means? It means that you're relying on everybody else to do their part. Because if half of the people build their wall, but the other half of the people don't, you know what you don't have? You don't have a wall. You don't have a wall. Part of being in a church family is trusting that everybody else is working just as hard as you are. I'm not talking about serving in the church right now. What I'm talking about is your own heart. Your own heart. Because the destiny and the purpose that God has for you necessitates a divine nature. And it's going to require work and it's going to require effort. It's why one of our favorite sayings here at City Life is we're going to make your soul sweat. Not because we don't believe in grace. It's because that's what grace inspires us to do. Stand with me. Father, I pray for whoever you knew was going to be here tonight who needed to hear that word about being lackadaisical. And I pray that tonight, even if it's in this song, that a little bit of righteous indignation would well up inside of their heart. And that magnifying glass that the devil's been putting in front of, of them to make it seem like all the things that God expects of them to be bigger than they are, that, that they would just shove that thing right aside and embrace a God lens. There's somebody here tonight, God, and, and they've, as they look back into the story of their life, they, they can't think of a time where they've met a vow of devotion to you ever. I pray that tonight would be that night. Listen, just as you're, just got your eyes closed here as we're praying, there's people on either side up here. We're here every week to pray with you. If you're here and you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, just come on up and pray with one of these people. It's time for you to say, I'm not gonna serve an enemy. I'm gonna serve my creator, my father in heaven. Father, whatever it is that someone needs from you tonight, we know that you are the one who gives to us every good and perfect gift that comes from above. And for all of us, God, I pray there would be at least one day in December when we would be hungry. We would be hungry. And we would do the work of fasting, not just for the spiritual maturity we're desperate to find and the divine nature that needs to grow in us, but the breakthroughs that are waiting for the effort that we're supposed to bring to bear. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship together.